In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... I really want to lose three pounds. Yeah, no, don't put me down for cardio. Diet starts tomorrow. Exercise gives you endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. I want to quit the gym. Happy people just don't shoot their husbands. With hosts Aileen Cooperman... Joey does a shampoo! ...and Sammy Fishbein. Whatever, I'm getting cheese fries. Hello and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Sammy. I'm Aileen. And today we are joined by a very special guest that I am a huge personal fan of. Her name is Anne Helen Peterson. We are talking about the concept of millennial burnout. You might remember a very popular BuzzFeed article that literally has stuck with me for now it's like two or three years. Anne wrote, can't even, how millennials became the burnout generation. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Yeah, we did a whole episode about that, actually, when it came out, I remember, because we were all like, this is so on point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I could not have timed it, you know, the book to come out in the middle of a pandemic, right? As people were like, I think really hitting the like the peak or I I think we hit the peak and we've plateaued at this level of burnout, like for the last six months, really, in terms of like, I, I feel like I can't get any more burnt out and suddenly yet here I am. (laughs) here I am this much left. (laughs) Yeah, nothing left. So, okay. I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of your newsletter. When I get it, I like, I really look forward to it and I save like a little corner of time for myself to like really read it. Cause whenever I feel like it's called, okay, just for the audience, it's called culture study. You should definitely sign up. But when I read it, I feel like my whole perspective has now shifted because of the things you write. And like, I just, I'm sorry, I'm fangirling you like so much, but I just, I have to. Um, (laughs) No, that makes me feel great. (laughs) Because usually I'm like, who's going to be interested in this besides like me and the five other people who like are interested in the weird stuff that I'm interested in. So I'm very happy. So I guess I'm like one of the five weirdos. (laughs) (laughs) But just speaking of the weird stuff you're interested, can you share like how you even got to all of the weird stuff and like just share like what is all that weird stuff how did you end up writing this article and doing this amazing newsletter that sammy can't stop talking about every day (laughs) i mean like everyone i have a weird like i think everyone has a weird story in some capacity right like just kind of like a twisted story even if it you feel like it's not like there there there's always texture there so i grew up in a small town in north idaho and when i meet most people they're like you're the first person I've ever met from Idaho. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think you are. <laughs> um, this is particularly true on the East Coast. Uh, and so I grew up there, but my parents were from Minnesota. Like they had come to come out West, essentially, like my dad wanted to be in proximity to Glacier Park. Like this is the motivating factor of where we chose to live was like driving distance to Glacier National Park. It's still 10 hours away. Like it's so far. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> but they... Uh, had gone to like a small liberal arts college. Like my mom really wanted to give me 
a, a more textured education than I think I would have otherwise received in this small Idaho town. So I did a lot of weird stuff. Like I went to science camp, went to French immersion camp. Um, and I was just a big nerd, like a big reading nerd. I was a mathlete. I also was a cheerleader because like, um, like a lot of girls trying to fit in, I was like, what are the ways that I can basically like align myself with the status quo? And the only way to do that, like I couldn't play sports. I was just horrible at them, um, was to become a cheerleader. And so I did that for seven years all through. That's a wide range of extracurricular. I loved it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like, I was developing these, these feminist politics that I wouldn't have called feminist at the time, because, you know, in the late nineties, that was still a bad word. That was like, you hate men. Right. Um, yeah. And, but I was developing those while also trying to figure out like, oh, but I love cheerleading. I love like learning these dances and like not having to figure out what I'm going to wear to school twice a week, every week. Cause you just wear your cheerleading uniform to school. That was the best part. Um, and so I, I went to a small liberal arts college in Washington state, uh, got into film studies, which was like something that I never, ever would have predicted for myself. I thought it was going to be like a math major, uh, and got, uh, gradually into celebrity studies and thinking about stars. And I should have known this about myself. I was obsessed with entertainment weekly when I was a kid, like I, I would read it cover to every cover week. <laughs> every week. I had a system where I would like in my Apple IIe, like made a database where I talked about each issue and gave it a grade like, oh, <laughs> the, the December movies issue B minus. <laughs> <laughs> did you publish this anywhere did you get burnt out from like your hobby <laughs> no i loved it i was so oh my gosh i just i really and i really wanted people magazine but i think my mom thought it was too lowbrow so we wouldn't and then like the 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 subscription was really expensive so we couldn't get people magazine but that was the real thing that i wanted um <laughs> which again should have told me something about my fascination with the business, the industry of celebrity and Hollywood in general, which is, I ended up getting my PhD uh, in celebrity studies and specifically wrote my dissertation about the history of the gossip industry. So I know a lot about People Magazine now. Wow. Can we talk about that a little bit? Like what, like what did you get for like, I mean, there's so much <laughs> to talk about there, but like, what is sort of your, I don't know, like what's your take on the, the gossip industry? I think that where we are right now is this pretty interesting place in the gossip industry where after a ton of tumult, for lack of a better word, over the course of the 2010s, where essentially the established powers within the industry lost a lot of power. They were undercut by the gossip blogs and by digital paparazzi. And like when we think about the peak gossip years of the last like 20 years, right, it's like 2007, 2008. That's when everything was happening mm -hmm. with Britney, um, when like TMZ, I think, was at its peak, that sort of thing, was this real moment of transition where it was unclear what was going to happen, like who had the power over their images. And what has gradually happened over the past decade is the stars figured out, like, we can control our images through our social media accounts. Um, and there's this great quote that I will never forget from Ashton Kutcher in like 2008, back when he was still married to Demi Moore. And he posted what was then called a twit pic, 
which is a photo that you post to Twitter <laughs> um, of Demi Moore, like leaning over in her bathroom. Like it was a shot for her butt essentially. And it was just, it felt like this incredible window of intimacy, right? Like, oh my gosh, here is celebrities like functioning as paparazzi on each other. And Kutcher said online, he was like, we're taking back our own paparazzi. I think I remember that. Because you could never get that picture. Paparazzi could never get that picture. It's so, no. But it's so much more interesting than anything they could get. Totally. Of like a celebrity with a coffee. Yes. It felt like so much more authentic and intimate um, and in a, a window onto the celebrity world, even though like obviously it was just as mediated in so many different ways. Like, But that really, I think, forecasted what was going to happen with celebrity in general, and also like someone who had already internalized that idea of self-surveillance, like Kim Kardashian, was able to ride it to like incredible success. And now I think we're in like, this past year has been pretty weird in terms of like, some people have been very savvy at trying to like, I think, allow access into the more messy and intimate intimate parts of their lives and some celebrities have been very bad at it (laughs) so I think like Kim has been pretty bad at it um which is interesting but then someone like Chrissy Teigen has done a very good job what what do you think about like now how sort of this I feel this like brewing like a lot of celebrities are turning against now it's not just they've taken it back but they're turning against like the past especially with like the Britney documentary and I saw Kim posted like a bunch of old um art uh headlines or whatever tabloid pictures and like it was alarming to see those those like um the names how they what they were talking about how her like she was like very fat but she was pregnant comparing her to Kate Middleton and like I remember seeing that and like think and I was very young and I was seeing that and I was like yeah I guess she looks like th- there was that one with the whale comparing yeah, her to a whale getting like Shamu yeah that's kind of funny but also kind of fucked up but funny am I supposed to laugh at this right and and but now like it seems very alarming. I think at the time we like took it all in stride though. We we're just like, oh yeah, of course. But you you're still internalizing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think gossip culture is misogynist and patriarchal and racist and like all, you know, it's upholding all of these different things that are going on, like different understandings in society. This has always been the case. Like we gossip as a way of kind of like working around, cementing, testing the boundaries of what our norms are. And I think that in the mid 2000s and the late 1990s, like all of these different times in our, in our very recent past, we still had this idea that like, oh yeah, we love women, but like, let's talk shit about them all the time and let's police their bodies. And like the, the idea for celebrities, and you saw this very clearly in the Britney documentary, like celebrities could not push back on that. If you push back on that right. as a celebrity, like you were out, you were labeled difficult, a bitch, whatever, um, you had to roll with it and be like, haha, isn't that funny that like you right. are demeaning it's- me as a person in front of national television, right? It sort right. of reminds me of like, you know, when like I was thinking about this with like the conservatorship and it's like if the more you insist you're not crazy, yeah. the more crazy you seem and the more they'll like use that against you. Totally. That is sort of like what position I think female celebrities were in at the time and like kind of still are. Right. Well, and I think also there was all of this discourse around Kim at that time about like, she's worthless. 
she's famous for being famous. Like there is nothing, there's no there, there. Um, this was before some of those discourses of like, she's actually a very savvy businesswoman were coming around. Mm-hmm. So like, it was very easy to pile that understanding of like, look at her abject pregnant body onto she's a dumb celebrity. Right. Right. And like there were um, specifically while she was pregnant, there were all these pictures of like her trying to put her feet into high heels. And she, uh, I and remember her, those very well. And her feet were really swollen. Like a lot of pregnant women's feet get really that swollen. That image is ingrained yes. in my brain. <laughs> and <laughs> ingrained. What she was trying to do, she like, she was trying to have a cute pregnancy the way that Kate Middleton had a cute pregnancy. And by cute, I mean like our <laughs> there, Janice Men, the former uh, editor-in-chief of Us Weekly defined it as like a basketball pregnancy where it looks like you've swallowed a basketball. And then mm-hmm. like after you've had the baby, it looks like that basketball is gone. <laughs> like that is the, yeah. that is the ideal pregnant body. And Kim was trying to do that. Like she was trying to dress up her body and be in public in the way that had become standard for female celebrities who were pregnant during that time. And like most women's bodies don't look like that when they get pregnant. And so people were policing her body for its failure to uphold that standard. And I think she kept being like, well, but I'm supposed to like my body's supposed to do this. I'm supposed to try to do this. I'm supposed to perform femininity. But like people kept saying she's doing it wrong. Right. Do you think there was like a little bit of like glee with which people addressed that pregnancy for her because they're so used to her looking like so hot and sexy and then like to see her not able to be in that state and she can't do anything to control it. I think people really like got a kick out of that. And I think that that was totally like not even addressed that like everyone sort of liked seeing her body turn on her. Yes, absolutely. And I think Kim felt like her body turned on her, right? Like if the, if you go back to the episodes of Keeping Up with the Kardashians when she's pregnant, she is miserable. And part of it is I think she is actually physically miserable. Like she had a really tough pregnancy and hated being pregnant. But then part of it too is she is watching. Like think of the mental stress of like you're trying to aspire to this ideal that you have internalized. And then seeing evidence of your failure to do so on every magazine cover around you, right? So you are just being told over and over again that you and your body is failing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's And yeah, also just saying also Kate Middleton had an awful pregnancy. Yes. Like she had hyperemesis yes. and she was puking every single day. Yes. And you don't see. But she had the basketball. But she had, she, she had the basketball. You're like, oh, yeah. she's skinny because she's puking every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, speaking of the Royals, yeah. what do you think the interview? I don't know if you watched yeah. it. I'm assuming you did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think is do you think that's going to make any type of splash or change in like the UK <sighs> press or just press in general? So I think it's really interesting in terms of like how it's being received in different national contexts, because I think the the very clear reaction in, in America is like, this is a scandal. This is this, this is going to take down the monarchy. Right. But the people that I've heard from who are watching it in the UK or the Australian context have told me that like there already is a lot of negative energy around Harry and Meghan. And what the way that a lot of the press is framing this is like 
this is such an American thing to do, to go and do this interview with Oprah, right? Even though like no one in this scenario is American, but that it's an American way of handling scandal. And that that is how like they're, especially white uh, British people are using this as like, how dare they like try to frame it in this way? Um, I mean, the thing I, I was tweeting about this last night, but like historically scandal happens when someone's action trespasses the status quo and there's like there's no redress right so in this scenario the scandal would be the the behavior of the overall monarchy towards megan and their inability to actually deal with it or or redress um but i think that the problem is that there are people in the uk in particular and this is reinforced by the way that this is being framed and handled by their tabloids and their press who who think that actually the people who are behaving scandalously are Harry and Meghan. I was obviously like really on top of Twitter as I was watching it. And I noticed like if you went to the trending topics, so many of those tweets were not just like regular people commenting. It was British out like outlets to like tweeting headlines that were like not so scandalously anti-Megan, but they were like, who pulled the strings on this on this interview? Yeah. Was it Megan? And like the the way that the press framed it was so clearly from like uh it's Megan and Harry begging for attention, mad they don't have security, mad about their titles, right. like looking for money. That's the entire like and I was also reading Reddit last night <laughs> and you could kind of tell like some of that people would like identify as Brits. Yeah. And you can tell that there is like a a sort of like giving the monarchy the benefit of the doubt, looking for everything that's right. wrong that they could possibly find with Meghan Markle. And it's like, okay, you're talking about this like huge institution that has, we all just watched four scenes of the crown of them <laughs> basically doing what Meghan and Harry right. were accusing them of. We also watched Princess Diana, like all of it is born out, but right. yet they want to find something wrong with Meghan, with Harry, with Diana, call them crazy right. or attention hungry or whatever it is, just to deflect from the fact that their organization is completely toxic. Right. Well, and I think the other thing, someone was pointing this out, it seemed really smart on Twitter, is that like Harry is showing that there is an option, like you can opt out, right? And if you show that that's actually possible, then what that does is like shows the other royals who have been miserable and haven't opted out. Like what sort of commentary is that on their decision to stay? Think of like Anne, right? So Right. Why didn't Anne opt out? Yeah. Like you would think Anne, but I, I kind of, I, trapped. I yeah. give Anne like the better, I, I feel like Anne was born too early to that opting out was not an option right. at the point that she was like facing the potential option like yeah. she really just it seems like she just gave it her all and was like i'm gonna just work yeah one thing another not? thing i've been thinking about is this idea of, of the abdication as like the the enduring wound right like the thing that they are always trying to reverse reverse heal not heal right ignore like never have happen yeah. again compensate yes. for Totally. And so everything is poised or or considered in comparison to the abdication or like if it, it if it feels in any way like an echo or a reintroduction of those feelings, then it has to be rejected. And so I think there are all of these echoes, especially within the, the, the inner family itself, that they're like, we cannot deal with this. I don't really understand why the abdication is like that big of a deal. Like. 
I don't know. I'm not like much of like a rules person, so I'm just like, okay, like so, just opt out. Right. Like it's fine. Like why? Like why do we have to do this? Right. Like, like, yeah, for clearly for them to, in order for them to even leave, they need to justify it with an Oprah interview. So it is yeah. like a, a big deal across the board. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some to my friend who is fostering kittens and it is the only thing they will eat. It comes in these pate packages and you scoop it and you just feel like you're a chef for your baby kitties and they j'adore it. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com slash DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order plus free shipping, baby. Do you think that like at any point is gossip healthy at all? Oh, I think it can be. I used to, I wrote something a while ago about like, can celebrity gossip be feminist essentially? And I think that what happens is that like, we use it as a way of talking about things that we otherwise can't talk about directly. Right. So like when we're talking about Kim and her pregnancy, a lot of what we're talking about is like, how we think about bodies and the way that women are valued and like the way women's labor is valued too. Right. Because like Kim has been Kim and her, her work or her, her labor as, as a woman with a body in public, like that is oftentimes degraded or discounted. Um, and in the past too, like the most vivid example is something like rock Hudson, when his AIDS diagnosis was revealed, like it became a way to speak about something that, for a lot of people was very unspeakable. Like you couldn't talk about not only, not even just someone having AIDS, but someone being gay, like how you couldn't put those words into your mouth, but you can with the language of a celebrity. And that doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly people are going to be like, I like gay people because a beloved star was dealing with um, a a life-threatening illness that people didn't know how to talk about, but it's more that it becomes part of a conversation and you can somehow when you have the vocabulary then you can start to have those those more in-depth conversations so the way that I think about it especially with celebrity gossip is like you (laughs) like there's a way that I have been able to step back and been like oh why am I reacting the way that I'm reacting to this thing right so yeah it sparks it definitely sparks conversation whether or not we're ready for it right yeah like Mm -hmm. I think that whatever your initial reaction to a celebrity outfit or a celebrity interview, like 
that's valid. That's how you're reacting. But that reaction is also informed by all of these other ideological forces. So you can be like, oh, how is my internalized misogyny operating in this moment? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were, we were actually just talking about that, like on one of our other podcasts, The Betches Up. We were talking about um, Megan and Harry, obviously. And something, especially when it came to the part about like the security and like the color of the baby's skin and the way that everyone sort of like reacted to that. What I noticed, because I was talking to so many people about it, I really feel like it says more about the the way you interpret that situation, I think says a lot more about you as the interpreter mm-hmm. than it does about the situation they were explaining. Yeah. Because there's clearly like so much gray there that was not like explicitly, it's not like any of us could really understand the full details of those of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the the kind of like, who do you give the benefit, the benefit of the doubt to mm-hmm. really says a lot about like, where, you know, how you sort of understand the situation. Totally. Well, and I think like, a white person is inclined to be like, oh, I bet someone in the family just wanted to know like how tan they would look. And <laughs> uh, a person of color, especially who is married into a white family, is like, I have dealt with this shit. And it is yeah. it is all about like, is this person going to look different than what I expect my family to look like, than like my understandings and and um, like levels of whiteness that I, that I want in my family. So I think that that too, like we bring, like you said, the benefit of the doubt, like it, it matters who, who's, who's interpreting it. Right. Well, just going back to your story and like where you are in your life, yeah. how did you end up talking about millennial burnout? <laughs> well, I, how did we get there I, well, from your gossip PhD? Well, I think I learned how to burn out when I was an academic. Um, because I think there's a real ethos of like, teach yourself to work at all times. Um, see- we burned out in high school. So oh, yeah, yeah the two of us. <laughs> yeah, I burned yeah. out before the SATs. Really? My yeah. Really pissed. Yeah. That's so interesting. Because I did not in high school, or even I don't think in undergrad. And part of it, I think is my age. And also where I grew up where there, there was just not a ton of like any sort of competition I had, it was all internalized. We went, so we actually went to the same high school. <laughs> There's a whole story there, but we we went, it was a very competitive high school. It was like, you must get into an Ivy League school right. or like everything was a competition, like extracurriculars, like sports, obviously. And so I think that's why the two of us have been burned. Like we got to college and we were just like, fuck it. Like who cares? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I barely got, I barely could get there. I was like, I care too much about eighth grade interim reports, <laughs> like to, to make it to my SATs, but I still made it. It's all good. What, what year were you guys born? Can you tell me that? 1989, like Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, so that, I mean, you are, you are peak millennial. You are like right. Yeah, we're like the middle. You guys are in the thick of it. The company we started. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) exactly. And I think that that also speaks to the fact that like a lot of these processes and ideas about competition and and getting into the right school and that sort of thing had ramped up when I was growing up, but like had were really reaching peak. Uh, and I think they're still ramping up actually. So peak is false. But um, by the time that, that you were in high school and, and trying to get into college. And so I, but they didn't come for me until I was in grad school. And, and also <laughs> just like academia is in such a precarious state that like working all the time was also 
conceived as the only way that you could possibly put yourself on a path towards full-time employment. Um, so I graduated it from, with my PhD in the aftermath of the financial crisis and the, the job market had not recovered, still has not recovered, will never recover. Uh, and I taught at a progressive hippie high school in Vermont for a year and then got a job as a visiting assistant and pre- professor um, actually at the college where, where I went. And I loved it. It was great. But I didn't get the full-time job there. But I had been basically like building myself a life raft on the side. I wrote for the hairpin and I wrote for my old school WordPress blog, Celebrity Gossip Academic Style. And I wrote for a couple other places. And by the time I didn't get the job, I had kind of tried out for BuzzFeed. I wrote this article called Jennifer Lawrence and the History of Cool Girls. That was one of their first viral long form articles. And so they BuzzFeed hired me to basically do whatever I wanted to do. This is when they were kind of throwing money at the wall being like, I guess try this out. Right. So mm-hmm. I gave my last final as a professor and then got on the plane the next day and, and moved to New York to work for BuzzFeed. And by the time that I burnt out and wrote that article, I had been at BuzzFeed for about five years. Um, and I think I had just really, you know, working in digital media is not unlike academia. It feels like the only way to survive is to just distinguish yourself in whatever way possible, usually by working all the time. Um, And I was so scared of getting back into that place that I was when I didn't get the job at, at my college and thinking like, am I, I have no skills. Am I going to have to move back into my mom's basement? Like, is this an actual future path for me? So I, really just was working all the time, but also there were the different um, textures of the way that I was working in terms of like, I went, I was doing a promotional weekend in Austin, Texas for my book and an editor called me and it's like, there was a mass shooting an hour away from you. Can you go there right now? Drove there, like covered this mass shooting. And then the next day got on the plane and went and stay, stay, like did this story where I stayed in this town um, of women who had fled the polygamous uh, FLDS cult, right? So people who were kind of trying to rebuild their lives after fleeing from um, generations of polygamy. And like, that's a ton to deal with, right? Like, you yeah. like, mass yeah. shooting to cover. Everything <laughs> you just said is, like, really heavy. Also, also your demeanor, the way that when you talk about this phase in your life, you seem like you're you, tired. You're <laughs> tired. And it's just like, so... there's burnout coming out of your eyes. And, like, that also, I was writing while I was there doing that story, reporting that story. At night, I was working on what would become this piece that I wrote about Army Hammer, um, and Army Hammer's like struggle, like I, the, the title of the piece was 10 long years of trying to make Army Hammer happen because I was really fascinated by the fact that like Hollywood had tried to make this guy into a leading man several times and had really failed. But this piece ended up coming out right when there was a ton of fandom around him because of Call Me By <laughs> Your Name. And I got like... The piece just like the worst trolls that I've ever. 
He has like had in my he life. has like troll stands, yes, which is bearing out now. Um, I don't know why. Like he's one of these actors that have like these really intense, yes, people who yeah. So like uh, dealing, like I'm like burnt out from these kind of you know traumatic things that I'm covering, and then I write this Army Hammer article, and like some of these state, like one of them threatened to slit my dog's throat, like just you know wild shit. Um, and then I just couldn't write. Like after this was after the midterm elections, I just was like writing crap and like fighting with my editors, which is not my style. And one of them said, like, I think you're burnt out. And I was like, how dare you? Uh, But I totally was. And I but I (laughs) originally just wanted to figure out why I couldn't do my errands, like why these (laughs) things on my list, my to do list kept recycling over and over again, like being like just pass it one they'd be on one week of my planner and then oh there they were again on the next week of my planner because they still hadn't mailed that package uh and as I investigated that like it just became clearer and clearer that what I was actually dealing with was burnout and it wasn't just like occupational burnout in terms of you know that's this that's the diagnosis that's now recognized by the World Health Organization which is just specifically to do with your job I thought it was a much more holistic thing to do with ideas about work that millennials in particular had internalized over the la- their lifetime. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y.com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. What are some signs of burnout, like a holistic burnout? Or like what's the difference between burnout versus just like I need a break, like I need a quick break or like I'm tired Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that what I thought burnout was and why I couldn't recognize it in myself was that I thought only like doctors and war zones got burnout, right? <laughs> or like um, people who were doing incredibly difficult work nonstop. Like I, I thought that your job had to be really, really important to get burnout. Uh, And that's not the case. I think people in all sorts of fields get burnout for various reasons. Um, So I think what it really feels like, and this is difficult to 
to distinguish sometimes from depression because I think they can come at the same time too. And I'm obviously not a clinical psychologist, but uh, it feels like to me, like you've hit the wall and then you're just like, well, I can't stop. Like my life can't stop. So I just have to scale the wall and keep going. And then the experience of that. I think it, it's a flattening, like your whole life, even the things that you used to do or used to love to do, or that felt dynamic or felt, you know, like, oh, this is really great. And this is really bad. Everything flattens into one long to-do list. You're just like, I got to get through this and I got to get through this and I got to get through this. Why do you think people are so obsessed with like appearing busy? <laughs> so I think it's a, a, the root of it is a class thing. There's this really interesting study that this um, professor out of North Dakota did where she looked at family letters over the course of like the last 40 years to see essentially when the family letters came to really focus, like Christmas letters, right, or holiday letters came to focus on we're so busy, right? Because I think that that idea of we are doing a lot of activities, <laughs> we are doing a lot of vacations, our kids are doing all of these activities. It is evidence of not only like a certain type of parenting, which is bourgeois middle-class parenting, but also a certain type of middle-class bourgeois leisure as well. And you have to do Can it. Can you like, elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, with the parenting component, there's this idea of what parenting should look like. And it really has developed over the course of like the last 30 years. And sociologists call it concerted cultivation. And it means that like as parents, you should be super involved in your kids' lives. They should be supervised in, in many ways. And they should be doing activities all the time. And the, the easiest way that I can think of the, the, the switch from a more hands-off style of parenting to this more concerted cultivation style is the evolution of like kid directed. We're going to go play in the streets for hours and no one's going to know what we're doing. And like, just, you know, go play right to the play date, which is a parent facilitated meeting between people who are of like similar class background and it lasts a certain amount of time and is supervised the entire time, right? So right. it's sort of like the advent of like scheduling where... <laughs> so what's when the planners came to me. Yeah. yeah. So why do you think this is like a middle slash upper middle class white thing? I So what I talk about in the book a little bit is that what happens at the mid 70s and then into the 80s is that... The golden age of capitalism, which is what some ec economists call the post-war period, like 1955 to 1975, is this period where like the middle class. That's what they, I think. Yeah. Like the middle that's class. That's what they grows, mean by like make America great yes, again. <laughs> yes. Like middle America or uh, middle class grows by leaps and bounds. And the economy is just robust for a lot of people. But to be clear, the economy is best for white people and the middle class expands the most for white people. And a lot of the things that made that middle class expand, whether it was the GI Bill or um, student loans or just like you know, uh, mortgage assistance, like those are things that were specifically granted to white people. 
that starts to fall apart at the end of the 70s and into the 80s. And so you have these people who grew up like this is my parents' generation who grew up like they were kids while the economy was still good. And they are entering into the economy as adults and are like, oh, my gosh, the middle class, like I need to sustain this middle class status, right? I don't want to fall backwards. And so how do you sustain middle-class status? Like you, you try to create this scenario for your kids, right? You're trying to create, like make, make sure that your kids also get, are set up for success and for middle-class stability. And so what that means in practice is like a whole lot of anxiety about, are my kids having the right play dates? Are they going to French camp or science camp? Are they studying for the SATs? Are they getting into the right college? Like you just get a lot more energy directed towards, am I putting my kids on the right path to reproduce what the the privilege that I have? You know, it's so interesting because you're actually like, just like, you're literally describing like the, the procedure of like my own family. Like I grew up in my grandparents' house. The reason my, like my grandpa benefited from the GI bill And it's like, okay, so I wouldn't have had that house in this really good school district if it weren't for that. Like, I'm like, we're still sort of living the results of that. Um, And then grew up, obviously, with like a lot of playdates. And like, I can think of very few unstructured social things that I did as a child. Like, everything was like planned. Like, occasionally we would play with like the kids across the street. But that was also like (laughs) semi-supervised. I mean, I, and this is where even the slight differences in age and location can have a lot of bearing on, um, on how, what a child look, looks, look like. So I was born in 1981 and then because I lived in a semi-rural place, like I played in the, we called it the weeds. It was just like vacant lots, hours, hours. <laughs> like I, and I remember so much time being bored, like going to play, you get, you're like, I'm going to go play, kick the can and come back seven hours later. Um, you know, just like a ton of unsupervised time. Um, and I think that that really has shifted a lot over the, the like even in the eight years between, between us. Can we talk about the pandemic? And how burnout and this whole attitude of like, oh, we're going through a pandemic, be gentle with yourself. But then actually in practice, like nothing in your life is really any different. I think that we have taught ourselves to respond to insecurity and precarity in our jobs and society by trying to show how productive we are, right? And how how much we have our... like our shit together. And I think that a lot of that has to do with like, oh, the the country or the economy is going through all of this instability. So how can I show that I am the worker who shouldn't get laid off, right? Or how can I show that I'm the one who isn't like, should should still have a job and should still have a modicum of stability. And the way that we've learned to evidence that is by whatever we think of as productivity. So that can often mean like sending a lot of emails, right? Or putting a lot of time on someone else's schedule for like check-in meetings or calling a lot of meetings or sending a lot of memos or or just like whatever your work is, doing a lot of it. 
and, and evidencing that you're doing a lot of it. And so, especially during the pandemic, especially during the beginning, I think people were like, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe this is going to be another great recession. I need to show how valuable I am right now. And so people, especially who had started working from home, like who had previously been in offices and moved into, into the home to work, I think decided that the best way to show that would be to like work from seven in the morning until 10 at night. And then once you have those habits in place, really difficult to break. So that, and then if you're dealing with that, plus like constant abject fear that this virus is going to come for your family or for other people that you love or for yourself. um, And then dealing with your kids and whatever is going on with them. Or if like one of your loved ones does have to leave the house every day and, and, and isn't working from home, just all of these forms of stress and the election. I mean, like November was just a lost month. Like I thought I was going to write a book during that time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the election was a week. Like, yeah, like we were all just refreshing our fucking browsers for <laughs> yes. a week. I was so stressed out. I like noticeably I slept so much less from the point of the first debate. Yes. To when Joe Biden won, like that entire window of time was just dark. Yes. <laughs> it was a really yeah. dark like time for me <laughs> personally. And I'm sure a lot of people. Yes. All I could do was just like maniacally clean my house. Sweet. Right. Like just like <laughs> to do all sorts of like that sort of thing. I couldn't concentrate on writing a book. It's just ridiculous. And I had to be I, like this last book that I just finished writing with my partner, which is about the future of work. It took me longer to write it than my previous books. And there's a scenario in which I could be like, eh, I'm kind of like feeling bad about that, that it took a little longer. Right. Are you kidding me? I wrote it during yeah. the pandemic when like I, also with the background of the backdrop of this like insurrection and this contested election. Like it's just wild. There's a lot of. Yeah. Like we're expected to like <laughs> we're, we're here's here's like the crazy thing is like there's no what I just don't get what we're supposed to do because there's no leader who's going to be like, OK, give yourself a break. <laughs> like Joe Biden, like like Joe Biden can't like make your boss give you a break. Like like even we who run a company like there's still the demands of the company so that we can like pay everyone in the company and it's like it's it's just sort of this like really like this system that you can't get out of like and there's no way to like give yourself any form of grace about it because the demands are on everybody yeah and we're all just sort of like placed into the system wherever we are and none of us are in charge of it yeah so on that like if that's the that's the dark side are there tips for getting out of that? Like, how do you, if somebody who's listening to this yeah. and feel extreme burnout, how do they get out of it? And say they don't, are there any long-term negative impacts of millennial burnout? Mm. Like if you, if you kind of don't even notice that you have, and you just keep going yeah. up this wall that you're saying, well, I mean, then you just like really flare out. I think like at some point you're just like, you got to fall off the actually, wall. Actually. Yeah. You actually fall off the wall and like something right. like something big, I like catastrophic happens. Right. Um, but in terms of how to deal with it, I think that our society really encourages us to think of these problems as individual problems. And like that part of that is like capitalism, right? Capitalism, like, okay, 
you're in this system. You have to deal with this problem yourself. Probably should buy something to fix yourself, right? Like this is the whole rhetoric of (laughs) self-care. It's like, if you just buy this CBD bath bomb, that will fix your burnout. (laughs) By the way, I I tried one. Kristen Bell sells them. I tried one the other day. My friend got one for me. It actually was pretty nice, um, but it did not cure my burnout. But I think that... um, It's like Band-Aids on burnout. Yes, yes, totally. And... On our own, we cannot dismantle capitalism, right? But we can we can try to agitate and work for these solutions that are going to make it better for not only us, but for a lot of other people. So I even think of something like being on board with universal childcare for three and four-year-olds, right? Or um, something like mandatory paternity leave, which is one of the ways like that has been shown to actually have lasting effects on the division of labor in the home is by like actually making dudes be personally and responsible for a child. Um, so things like that, that, you know, a big picture are actually going to change the amount of um, stress and, and labor that is foisted upon us. But then on a much more practical day-to-day level, I think that I have become adept at like recognizing burnout behaviors. So like what's a burnout behavior? For me, it's when I can't read fiction at night. Uh-huh. Right. Cause I like, I Hi. love reading books, right. I just love fiction. And then if I get into bed and all I want to do is like watch Instagram stories or play a stupid phone game, then I know <laughs> that I like, I do not have, I can't choose the things that I actually want to choose. Like I don't have the energy to do the things I actually want to do. And so, so that's the reason, right. Like <laughs> as I'm burnt out, right. I'm like, I can't do what yeah. I actually want to do. Um, and so that when I recognize that in myself, I'm like, okay, so what's going on in the rest of my life? Sometimes you can't change anything. Like I knew when I was in the thick of like finishing this last book draft, I was like, I'm in burnout territory. There's nothing I can do about it. But sometimes there are things like, especially if it's just you living your life, like if there is no, (laughs) um, no new cause, you're like, something has to change. Right. And, and being willing to have the conversations either with um, your family, your partner, thinking about what your childcare situation looks like or what uh, the expectations are at work. Like I think a lot of times millennials in particular, like we have, we've told ourselves that all these things are expected of us, right? That like, this is the perfection that is demanded of us. And sometimes those, those expectations aren't actually there, right? We've made them for ourselves. And you have to have some conversations to be able to like see that like, oh, I'm putting this unrealistic expectation on myself. No one else is. Um, but a lot of this too is is hard to implement with the pandemic as it is. Like people are just trying to get through right now. I think, I think we're going to be able to make some changes in the months to come. But right now, like cling to that life raft and, and like the rescue boat's yeah. coming. Or just, yeah, I think like for me, if I ever, or when I feel, or when I feel right now, burnout, (laughs) I like, I need to press pause and say like, I need to plan just even time off, just even like a week or three days, even if it's, and it can't be like time off where I'm like going and doing and seeing it needs to be like pure chill time. Like that, that at least if you're able to do that, like if you have that ability, I think that that's also very helpful for my personal experience. Like you're just going and going and you're like, I need to stop for a second. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's powerful. 
I think people have that opportunity, but they feel guilty or they don't realize that it's like not going to result in, or they think it will result in a consequence. Right. Right. And I think too, that oftentimes we take that time and we are so accustomed to filling spare time with work that we do not know what to do with ourselves. You know, (laughs) you're like, "Eh." Um, and I think that part of the problem is that a lot of us have embraced work so fully that other parts of our lives have really atrophied. And so I think this is especially true with something like a hobby. Like people are like, oh, well, the only hobbies I have are things that like I do for Instagram, right? Like it has to look beautiful. It has to be performed for someone else. But one thing that I've really worked on is figuring out component, like areas of my life that I do because I legitimately like it, even if I'm crap at it, even if I would never, ever want to put it on Instagram, like it is something that I actually am interested in that is not work. Right. Also, you don't have to be, that's a really good point. You don't have to be good at your hobby. No. Like that a lot of people think that like you can be really like if you love puzzles and you're just like takes a year to finish one, you could still do it. <laughs> yes, but, yeah. but don't you think this Color. is, this is like a millennial thing though, too. I think especially like when, when we were younger, you wanted to do something so that you could say like, oh, I'm very good at like on your resume. Yeah. Not enough just to say that you do something. You have to say that you're good at it. You have to distinguish yourself at it in some capacity. That's just not true, right. right? Like I'm really into gardening. I'm a bad gardener. Like I'm not good at it. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Vegetables die. Yes. My, I, yeah. I have memories of like when I was a child, like doing activities. And the reason I quit them was because I wasn't good. Right. So I would only stick with the things that I was Why like, are they worth it? Right? right. I would only stick with the things I was good at. And I, if I wasn't good at something, I inherently didn't like yes. it. Because we're used to being graded. I mean, that was even before I knew what like a grade was. But I think we're just so used to like measuring our worth in ways that are like almost per- like that they all have to have a purpose. Yes. But not every single thing you do has to have a purpose. No, not at all. <laughs> like it does. But that's not like what we're told. Yes, no. And it, I think now instead of grades, you're like, oh, it needs to be like pretty enough for Instagram or like I have to be able to monetize it in some capacity. So true. Yeah. That's so true. Wow. <laughs> um, just speaking of just working from home and how you're talking about burnout, yeah. t- can you tell us about the book that you have written yeah. in the pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> when it's coming out and all of that. It is called Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home. And it's not exclusively about working home. It's really about like what my partner and I, his name is Charlie Warzel. He is a writer for the New York Times. Uh, What we're thinking about in terms of like how office workers are going to go back to work. Because at first, I think people are going to be really excited to go back to the office because they just don't want to be in their houses. But then after that, you're gonna be like, wait, why am I commuting five days a week with this rigid schedule? Are you kidding me? What's like, where are my soft pants? Uh, And so I think (laughs) that there's going to be a really interesting, flexible configuration. Every company is going to look different, but there's going to be a lot of possibilities, I think, to be doing uh, more concentrated work that actually doesn't take as much time. And then also open up your life to other things that aren't work. So I think a lot of times, um, you know, there's been this huge decline in like 
civic volunteerism, like all sorts of different like things that, um, you know, even hobbies, like just having things out in our lives. I think a lot of people felt like they couldn't commit to things because they were so busy, um, whether that's with children's activities or their own work schedules. But I think the pandemic has given us a moment to pause and kind of think about like, oh, what what do I want my life to be about? And and I do a four day work week, right? A four, at least, right? Like a four day work week <laughs> is is very very possible. We just have to be intentional about it. And I used to always like I'd be like, I can't volunteer at the food bank every Thursday. Like, who knows what my schedule is going to be? Of course, I can volunteer at the food bank every Thursday. Are you kidding me? I just have to make it a priority. So. Right. Like there's this sort of like, I don't have permission to do anything that is not part of my job. Like it looks bad or like I'm not working enough. I don't know. I just feel like I wish all of society would sort of like have like, I don't know what what you'd call it, sort of like an agreement. Like we're all just going to work less and the standard will be lower and that will be better for everyone. But you can't do it as an individual. No. You can't just be like, I'm going to have a four day work week because everyone else has meetings on Friday. (laughs) Like like you can't do that. You can't be like, sorry, I'm doing my four day work week. It's like you need to establish the boundaries and the boundaries have to be accepted by like a higher someone who is higher up in the food chain, I guess. Well, and like, the people who can get away with doing that, like there was this book that was very popular after the recession called The Four Hour Work Week. And it was basically it seems a little unrealistic. Yeah, but to it's, me, it's but, a yeah. white guy who was like, I'm just going to be ruthless. Like I'm going to like hire cheap assistants in India and then I'm going to like I'm going to say no to people all the time and also like trick my bosses and stuff. What are you doing? Like it's something that the rest of the time he's like he's a jujitsu champion, like all this sort of thing. Right. But like it is something that only a a white dude could get away with, because if a woman tried to like set those boundaries around her time, they'd be like, no. I mean, four hours is ridiculous. Let's be honest. Like, what are you getting paid for? Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be like, what are you getting paid for if you're only working four hours? Like that, I don't believe you that you are actually producing what your salary is worth. But like, you can at the same time reduce the overall workload on everybody so that it feels like no one feels like guilty that they're not working at X time or as much as everyone else is. Well, and something that we talk about a lot in the book is with remote work, but I think this was also true before we went remote. Uh, there is this need to like show that you're working. It's like, we call it LARPing your job, like live action role playing your job. <laughs> and it's just like evidencing that you're doing work, but you're not actually like getting any work done. You're just trying to show other people that you're doing work. And then they're like, oh, I got to show other people that I'm doing my work. And it just turns into this snowball effect of people just trying to show that they're doing work and being productive. And that is time you do not need to spend working, right? There was there was once this this tweet that it was like work is really just like everyone yeah. passing back like the same email being like please advise back and Sorry forth for and it's delay. like please. it really does help you be more productive it makes you feel right yeah it makes yep. you feel more productive to like send that Slack yep. message that's like long and detailed yes. and annoying but it's really just you foisting the work to feel so that everyone who's receiving the Slack message feels like right. oh my or god like she's so busy meetings. I have people to people call meetings that. all the time because 
they want to show that they're doing work, right? They're like, or share their work or have a conversation about work, that sort of thing. And meetings take up like this massive amount of actual time that could, you just, they don't need to be, right? Like so often a meeting can be an actual email, but an email doesn't seem like working in the same way. Yeah. But I have a, I have a quick I have a quick question. No, I've stopped scheduling. I think about this a lot. Like I know that there's so much data about like actual meetings are productive for the first 30 minutes out of an hour, the other hour are just spent like just chatting, but like instituting efficiencies within meetings and doing all of that. Doesn't that like propagate this whole like hardcore machine system of work? So it's, it does the opposite. (laughs) Right. I think, well, I, I honestly <laughs> stop scheduling touch bases like formally because like I don't want to be like, no, I don't want to be no like, one. okay, every week at like <laughs> Thursday at one, we're going to touch base. We're going to touch base. So no, I, so now what I do is like whenever I just like have a lot to phone. say to someone, I'll be like, can <laughs> we get on the phone for a few mi- or like right. Zoom, can we talk for a little bit about XYZ issues? And it's like what like. I, I found that that's been so much more helpful because it's like, I don't have to wait till Thursday till the touch base. And I don't right. need to like right. come up with shit to say on Thursday if I don't have any. Well, okay. It's so like, going back to the first to question, talk, we'll I think that when you be, when you're trying to become ruthlessly efficient and that just makes more time for you to actually fill with more ruthless efficiency, that's the problem, exactly. right? Um, yeah. If you're still working the same amount of hours and it's just filled with ruthless efficiency everywhere, like that you're just working more. Whereas if your eight hour day is actually compacted into four and then you have those other four hours to like be a person in the world, um, that's different, right? And and that's what's hard for us within American capitalism to get our heads around. We're like, oh, it doesn't mean that we can just fill those hours with more work. Like it means there are other (laughs) things that we can actually do. Right. It's to prioritize all of your other, like yourself, your relationships, all of that. Yeah. I mean, I have a billion more questions for you, but <laughs> I'm going to wait to read the book. Is is it available to pre-order? I know it's coming out in December. It's like, I mean, you know, it has like a fake cover that you can find on Amazon. It's coming out in December. So I wish it could come out sooner. That's not how book publishing works. Um, but that that is when it's coming out. <laughs> Well, we really, really appreciate your time coming on this podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with us and like sharing all of this. And I personally find you like so intriguing because, you know, a lot of people say I've been thinking about this whole hour like that, like being into celebrity gossip makes you just kind of like that's not that's not like being an intellectual, but you're both. (laughs) I feel justified in my life. validated and tell, tell us where so your book can't even is out so if people want to like you know get their fix before december they can find it what's the what's the subtitle can't even how millennials became the burnout generation okay and everybody go sign up for ann's newsletter and follow her on social and helen peterson and twitter as well thank you so much and everybody you can go follow us at diet stars tomorrow at aileen at sammy rate review subscribe follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and we're always with you through thick and thin. Betches.